0: Uh, my name is Nick. If, if I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Um, it's funny, some summer Sundays, it seems like maybe we have more people volunteering in the back than we do actually out here <laughs> with, the, with the vacations going on. But I'm glad you're here. And I have, uh, as usual, though we're only looking at a few verses, I have a lot for us. So um, you could open up your Bibles, uh, Luke 4, Luke chapter 4. Verse one through four is what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, happy to give away the word. if you want to keep it, please do if you want to give it away, please do uh, I haven't yet figured out how I'm going to go from lapel to that, but we'll we'll see we'll get to there when we when we get there. Um, let's read. Everybody there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1, 2, 3, 4, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, oh, I'm sorry, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Would you pray with me? it last week, say it again. Jesus, we are not just watching our example here. We're watching our Savior and Redeemer. We're watching you stand in the gap for a people that have, since their inception, really been enslaved. God, I pray when Your Word has a way of opening windows into spiritual realities that our eyes otherwise don't see, I pray, Jesus, by the power of Your Spirit that You would use these words to open those windows and help us to face the war that's really going on for our souls in this room right now. And help us to see the only one who can lead us into victory. Jesus, I don't know what people come in here with, what people come in here struggling with. But I do know the biggest issue in their lives right now. And it's this war it's the accuser of the brethren it's the one who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving it's the lion seeking to devour it's the great serpent of old who will in the last day be thrown down for good so Jesus I pray that you would show us the deep relevance of everything we're looking at the great victory that is ours in you. I pray for your help. I don't want to be scatterbrained between what I'm doing with music and what I'm doing here. I pray, God, that you'd help me to be present with you in these moments with these people. In your name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you. Um, I am, and you can see it above... You know, on your handout there, and you remember from last week. I'm titling my messages through Luke 4:1 through 13. Just say no. Just say no. I think I ripped that off of Dare, right, or in high school or whatever. I remember them coming in. Just say no to drugs. But I'm titling these messages "Just Say No." And I have two major reasons for that. First, Jesus is the first man in the history of the world to look the devil in the eye and tell him resolutely no. No. As I said last time, Thousands of years of yes after yes after yes from humanity become at last in the Savior a resounding and cataclysmic no. We always just bowed, bucked under that pressure. And here comes one now, God in the flesh, to stand back, the first one to push back against the devil. And essentially, it is the the, the the first mortal wound that this serpent of old endu- uh, endured, suffered. So Jesus is the first one to just say no. That's my first reason for this title, but there's more. Because, secondly, we remember that Jesus has taken on flesh for. Us. He came into humanity not to try to prove himself. He already knew what he had in him. He came into humanity to save us. To save us. So while in one sense his no is a slamming of the gates right in the face of the devil, it is in another sense the opening of the gates uh, for humanity. Slams the the gates in the devil's face, opens the gates for us to a whole new world of possibility where suddenly those who have ever since the fall been only and always slaves, children of the devil by nature, suddenly they find open to them the possibility of becoming the children of the living God. Awesome. So, his no stands unique in history. Decisive, ultimate, final, first mortal wound struck to the serpent. But, but, he opens up the possibility now for us to participate in his no. The church now in Christ is given power by His Spirit to resist the devil. That's why we read awesome verses like those in Romans 16.20. Here, Paul here, talking to the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, God's doing it, make no mistake. And it's for peace, though it's war, make no mistake. But He's doing it, church, under your fate. The son first put the serpent under his heel, and now by his spirit, his church is keeping the serpent there until the end. So you and I participate now in just saying no. This morning, we're, we're just gonna get through, as you probably caught on from what I read, just the first four verses. The first temptation is really where I'm gonna set my sights. Uh, as far as I can see now, uh, we're gonna be in this for two more weeks. Uh, okay? But hey, listen to me, man. I mean, this is, this is so important. When you're gonna be, when you're gonna be kind of peering back and looking into the designs of the devil, the schemes of the devil, right? Paul talks about that. He's like, we don't wanna be outwitted by our enemy. Want to know what is he doing here? So we're going to spend time. Okay, we're going to first um, uh, I just kind of open up with some, some two basically opening observations, and I'll, I'll draw those from verses one and two, and then we're going to look at uh, the satanic temptation there in verse three and the uh, messianic resistance there in verse four. So first, a couple of opening observations. First. Uh, I want to key my first observation off of the phrase there at the beginning of verse 2. I wonder if you noticed it. Um, Being tempted. So if you read it there, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now what what am I doing with that? Well, in the English there, it's a good representative of what's in the Greek which has this progressive tense to it. And the, the idea is that what we are witnessing in our text, whether you realized it or not, is not the beginning of Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. It is perhaps the climax, but it is not the beginning. Satan, or Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So what I'm seeing here is for 40 days temptation is going on. From day 1 to day 40, the wilderness was all of temptation. We are just witnessing, like you will, on July 4th, the grand finale of sorts here on day 40. And the implication I wanted to draw out from this for a moment for us, I think this speaks eloquently, actually, to us of the uh these are bigger words, I'll make sense of them in a moment, of the of the perpetuity and the ubiquity of temptation. Meaning it's ongoing and it's ever present. We tend to think of temptation as if it's kinda like, okay, uh it's out there somewhere or it's waiting for me on you know august thirtieth, but it's not here now. And what this is saying, I think, and what we can draw, because we live in a fallen wilderness world, is that all of life here is going to be, in one sense or another, temptation. Temptation may differ in degree, but it is always present. You hear me on that? So it might escalate, it might climax, but it's always present. Present, just because the lion doesn't strike with recognizable ferocity, doesn't mean he isn't always prowling in the shadows, baiting and waiting. You feeling me on that? This means that um, the devil is present when you're just scrolling on your computer. Temptation there. It means that uh, he's present when you are just flipping through the channels on your television at night. Or you're going through the aisles of the grocery store. Or he's there when your coworker gives you that kind of flirty eye. You don't know what to do with it. Temptation is life in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Therefore, as Peter says, in light of this, we must be sober minded and be watchful. I mean the reason he gives right there, first Peter five eight, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. These aren't fun realities, but this is this is life in a fallen world. So be sober, be sober, be watchful. Now, this actually leads me to my second observation. Being tempted in the ever-presence and ongoing nature of temptation uh, in the, when we're living life in the wilderness leads me then to ask, uh, well... How can we be sober-minded and watchful? What are we supposed to do if life is a temptation in this way, a war? The second observation I want to bring out answers that question because we can do essentially what Jesus does here, namely, fast. Bear with me on this. And he ate nothing during those days, verse 2 says. I have always read this. I have always read this. As, okay, this means that Jesus is, is like super weak and ready to fall over. And I said it last week. It means he's on the doorstep of death. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's, he's so weak. But there's a strength that comes here too. I, while in one sense, fasting makes Jesus most vulnerable to this first temptation, food, in another sense, it makes him most ready to resist it. i me share with you what I mean. We must not think for a moment that Jesus is merely empty in our text. In fact, the text won't allow it. He's empty of worldly things. He's empty of food. But we have back there in verse 1 clear indication that he is full of Holy Spirit. There's a weakness in the flesh, sure, but there is a strength in the Spirit. There's an emptiness in the flesh, sure, but there is a fullness in the Spirit. There is a way to be full, even when you're empty of the things of the world. And fasting often gets us into that place. I've heard it said, perhaps you have as well, fasting in one sense, is feasting on God. It's filling yourself up, though not with food and earthly comforts or whatever you're fasting from, video games or whatever. It's filling yourself up with, it's feasting on Jesus. That's why Jesus would look to His disciples in John 4.32 and say, I have food to eat, you guys, that you don't know anything about. You're asking me to get a sandwich. You're asking me to pull out a Lunchable or something. i got food to eat. You don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of my Father. I'm feasting right now, even when I'm hungry. So there's a sort of weak strength that marks a fasting man. and I wonder if you know what I mean. And here's... As we kind of bring this into our, to our own situation, think about this with me. A large part of why we fail when the heat of temptation is turned up, when that degree rises a little bit, right? One of the main reasons why we fail is that we're so used to saying yes to everything we want and desire. We're so used to saying yes. We come out of the womb now Spring loaded as it were to say yes to whatever I want. I mean, it's, it's fun to talk about toddlers, you know, it's just they're such an easy target. I, I live with this every day of my life. You know, Chloe wants a toy, Bella has it. what she think? Yes! <laughs> Grabs it, knocks her on the head, whatever. Become spring-loaded out of the womb to say kind of yes to everything we desire. I want food. Yes. I want TV. Yes. I want I want wine. Yes. We get so used to saying yes that we're not prepared to say no. We don't even realize when the devil's at our door. And suddenly, suddenly when when he's saying, "Hey, you want sex before marriage? Yes. Hey. You want that job even though you have to fudge your resume to get it? Yes. Hey, hey, you, you want you want uh, keep rolling down the list. You want revenge on that person that humiliated you at work? Yes. You see how this works? We are we are training ourselves not for life in the wilderness, life at war. We're training ourselves as if it's just like a peaceful, but hey, yes, 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 whatever I want, all good. And Jesus out here fasting is saying no. So I'm thinking there's a weak strength in these moments that our Savior has. Because fasting... Helps us keep our desires, our appetites in check, in submission to the the only one who ultimately satisfies. There's a sentence I would love for you to go home with: Fasting trains us in the day of relative peace to say no in the day of absolute war. Do you hear that? Fasting trains us in the day of relative peace to say no in the day of absolute war. Just sums up what I've just been saying. We're training. We're aware. War is going on. We want to be sober-minded and alert. So whether we're in the thick of it and the devil's in our face or not, we are getting ready because we know he's in the shadows. You see this? So in the day of relative peace, we're learning how to say no so that when it gets really hard, we're ready. We talk about training all the time. I mean, you guys are in Silicon Valley. You're, all, you're on the cutting edge. So All your offices, I'm sure. Oh, another training on this new product. Another training. Another training. We train for our careers. We train for sports. We train for marathons we're going to run. We train for recitals or dances we're going to be in. We train. We train. We train. We even train for military and all these things. But are we training for cosmic warfare? For the war that's raging right now, for yours and my soul in this room? Does that even cross our minds? I'll be honest with you. Just full disclosure, I'm horrible fasting. I mean, I fast, but it's not because I'm trying to. It's because I'm like busy doing all sorts of stuff. And then I forget that I ate, not to eat, you know. But but this purposeful telling myself no, not because we're ascetics that run off into the desert and lash our backs, but because Jesus is better. And we know, we're just, one way or another, we're training ourselves. Yes, 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 yes. So I lash at my wife when I don't get what I want. I roll my eyes when my kids give me problems because it's yes for me. Fasting, from whatever it may be, trains us. When the temperature's turned up, to say, no. If the Apostle Paul thinks he needs training, how much more do we? Here's him. 1 Corinthians 9:27 I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. That's Paul. So Jesus isn't merely weak in the flesh here, he is simultaneously strong in the spirit. Now, let me move into our text really proper there in verse 3. Um, As we look at the satanic temptation that comes to him, um, read that there with me. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And you have to step back with me for a moment and just look at the text for what it is. And you have to say, That seems relatively harmless. On the surface of it. But you see, guys, that's the horror of the devil's methods. The horror of the devil's methods. We don't even realize when the hook is kind of going through our lip before it's too late. And so you look at this text, you look at what the devil says to him, and you go, okay, I've big deal. <laughs> the son is hungry, he, he can do miracles. That's true. Why not get some bread? Why not eat? Why be out here starving? That makes sense to me. You and I, if someone came up in the wilderness, offered us food, we'd say, thank you very much. So what is going on here? What we have to realize, what we have to realize is that if Christ were to turn that stone to bread in this moment, He would in effect be breaking the bond between Himself and the Father. And he would be essentially handing the world over to the devil. Because what that bread says, turning that stone to bread says, I don't trust him to provide. And the son's whole mission has to do with submission to the father from beginning to end. And so if the devil can break that now, he can win later. The world is his. So this bread would be the undoing of the cosmos though it looks like nothing but a snack in the wilderness. Beneath the seemingly harmless surface of Satan's statement here, there was a bottomless ocean of ill will. And there's a serpentine subtlety to it all. But the Messiah is onto it. He watched it happen with Adam. He watched it happen with Israel. It's not going to happen to him. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about the nature of um, satanic temptation. I wanted to bring out three kind of qualities, three aspects to what Satan is trying to do here and kind of broaden that out because it's what he's always tried to do. And it's what he's trying to do in your life in one way or another right now. I'm going to bring those three things out now, though they're going to come into clearer and clearer light as we proceed through the, um, the, the two temptations that follow this next time. The first thing to note is that satanic temptation involves what I would call defamation of character. It's defamation of character going on here. Not yours and my character. That's not where I'm, I'm, I'm that's not what I'm thinking about at first. I'm thinking about God's character. He's trying to get us to defame God. God's name with these sorts of questions, with these sorts of temptations. Before Satan aims his words anywhere else, he aims them at the glory, at the character of God. Now, I wonder if you noticed that um, as far as, as speech goes, there's been narrative silence in our text since, uh, since back in chapter 3, verse 22. No one's been talking since chapter 3, verse 22. And what was the last voice we heard? It's kind of still echoing in our text as we make our way into chapter 4. It's God's voice over Jesus at His baptism. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. It's the last voice we heard until now in verse 3 another voice comes in. And it's not the voice of Jesus' Father. It's the voice of His enemy. And this voice is issuing a challenge of the Father's voice. If you are the Son of God, come in this stone to become you are my beloved son if you are the Son of God. There's a challenge here issued by the devil in the wilderness, and does it not immediately bring to mind what Satan began to do with? Adam, did God really say? That's Genesis 3.1. That's the unraveling of it all. When Adam, e- even for a moment, entertains the thought that a lie could proceed from his Creator. Did God really say, you're His beloved Son? If you're His Son, come on. It's getting him to question God's Word getting Jesus to question God's character. If your father loves you so much, if he's so pleased with you, why are you starving in the wilderness? I mean, that's got to that's gotta feel ironic. I love you so much, son. Now get into the wilderness and let's bring you to the brink of death. Doesn't sound like a good father to me. Where's the love in that? Adam had every tree in the garden except for one for food. Israel, when they were in the wilderness, had manna for food. Where's your tree? Where's your manna? It's not here. Where's your father? He's not here. He's alive. going on in your life? I wonder, I wonder. maybe as I'm even saying this, if you're starting to recognize how how the enemy's voice is kind of blended with the thoughts of your own consciousness, as you kind of interpret the circumstances going on around you, the hard stuff, the stuff that just, Sarah Jr., the stuff that sucks, I always have to look to make sure, <laughs> Craig's daughter's, the stuff that sucks. And you look and you go, "Where's the loving God here? Where's the good God I, I read about in my devotions? I read about it in my devotions, and then I walk out into the real world. Where there's no God like that taking care of me. I'm abandoned here. Let me tell you something. There's a snake coiled under those words. There's a snake coiled under those words. And you better put your heel to it before those words start to poison your heart. I'm not saying life isn't hard. I'm not saying the Psalms don't teach us how to cry to God. They do. I am saying don't let that fundamentally seep into your heart. God will walk with you through it. But don't put a period at the end of that sentence. Put an ellipsis. I feel this way, but it's not done. I know it. Secondly, satanic temptation comes at us at another level. You've got defamation of character. We have another level that, that satanic temptation comes at us. And it involves what I would call um, an identity crisis. Okay? Defamation of character. Now, identity crisis. Let me tell you what I mean by this. As Satan aims to get us questioning who God is, he simultaneously is, is aiming to get us to question kind of who God says we are. Who I am in him. Now, I don't know if you've always interpreted um, those words kind of spoken there uh, over Jesus' baptism as kind of for the crowd around Him. But I'm telling you, we don't have any indication except for maybe John, that maybe he heard or saw something. But I'm telling you, we don't have any indication of anybody hearing anything. Those words that God speaks identity over the Son... You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That identity spoken over him, that wasn't for all the people to know. I don't think that he's the son. They wouldn't get it. That was for the son himself. That's why when we look at, say, how um, Luke, uh, where is this here? Yeah, Luke records God speaking. He records it in the second person. You. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He's speaking to Jesus. I want you to know your identity, Son. Does that seem weird to you? We get to Matthew, Matthew uh, 3.16, and we read this, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending. This vision, this voice, it's primarily, if not entirely, for the Son himself. To know that he's a son, and that he's loved—the affirmation of his identity from his heavenly Father—is critical to all that's going to follow. And you say, "Well, I don't understand. I thought he was son from all eternity. I thought he knows who he is. I mean, he's Jesus Christ. What does he need this affirmation? Why?" So, was God sending him into the wilderness, where he knows? Satan is going to aim with all his might at the core of his son's identity. If you are the son of God. And so God gives him a word and he does this for us. That's what Sundays. That's what the scriptures, that's what all this is about. God wants to speak to us before we head into the trial. He wants to speak identity here and that's what he does for his son. You are my beloved son. I'm so pleased with you. Don't forget who you are when the devil's in your face. Here's what the devil comes and says. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Let's challenge your identity for a moment. I'm not sure you're loved. I'm not sure he's well-pleased with you, I don't see much evidence of that here in the wilderness with no food. Do you? I'm not even sure you're a son. If you're a son, prove it. If that's your identity, prove it. Turn the stone to bread. And then I'll, I'll believe you. Subtlety serpentine subtlety he's calling the son to question his identity to question the validity of his father's word over him he's calling Jesus into the horror of self justification prove yourself here's the crazy thing if Jesus this is what the devil knows If Jesus were to attempt now to prove Himself to the devil, He would in essence be denying His sonship in the very act. Because it's the nature of the Son to submit, to trust the Father. And in the Father's eyes, by the Father's voice, He is loved, He is well pleased with Me. And therefore, if the Son were to come out from under the Father's voice to vindicate Himself to another he would in that very moment sever his sonship. Because he would be removing himself from the place of trust, place of submission, and the identity that he already has in his Father's eyes, the only eyes that matter. But don't we live in that place sometimes? Don't you just live there sometimes? Like, okay, we have been baptized in Jesus and we have the very same banner flying over our head. Beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased because we're in the Beloved Son with whom the Father was well pleased. Same banner over my head and yet we get thrown into identity crisis. We spend so much time looking at does God really love me? Is he pleased with me? We try to go around and justify ourselves and prove ourselves to others. Forge an identity for ourselves. If I'm not sure about the Father's love for me and his pleasure in me, I'll do everything I can to get you to love me and you to be pleased with me. It's identity crisis at the very core. When we deny, we question, we doubt what God has spoken over us in the Son. You are beloved. I am well pleased. I can tell you nothing more than look to the cross. All sins wiped away, justified freely by grace. Period. To go out seeking to justify yourself in a lower court in someone else's eyes is to deny the, the, the justification you have in the highest court before God, the only eyes who matter. defamation of character, identity crisis, third, tyranny of the urgent. Tyranny of the urgent. If Satan can get us to question God's character and bring our own identity as his children into crisis, then he will easily get us to bow to the tyranny of the urgent. Do you know what I mean by that? Immediate gratification. Why wait when you can have it now? Let me show you why this is. If God has abandoned me, if there is no hope laid up for me beyond this trial with Him, why in the world would you endure As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection from the dead, what in the world? We, we Christians are, are idiots. Eat, drink, and be merry now. For tomorrow you die. If God isn't there, if you aren't a son, if He's not going to take care of you, take care of yourself. Starting today, why be hungry in the wilderness? This is what Satan's doing. If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Are you seeing how these lever, these levels kind of interpenetrate here? Why starve? <laughs> Satisfy yourself. There's another sentence I want you to go home with. Satan counterfeits what God promises to give us eventually and offers it immediately. Do you hear me on that? I don't mean to be annoying quoting myself, but I, I want you to know this. Satan counterfeits what God promises to give us eventually and offers it immediately. God will protect. He will provide for His children, but it is through the valley of the shadow. There's a verse, uh, Acts 14, 22, from Paul as he's exhorting the church. He says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Oh, you will enter the kingdom. Don't give up on the king. But it will be through many tribulations. Satan, as we'll see next time, holds out the kingdom now. But it won't be. It won't be theirs in the end. As I've spent these last few weeks kind of meditating on the designs of the devil, it became clear to me that uh, one of his chief strategies is to get me to live my best life now. Seriously. Forgo the valley of the shadow. I'll give you the green pasture now. Forgo the tribulations. I'll give you the kingdom now. Why in the world would you endure all this when you can have it now? Let me give you everything you want today. Everything you want. So that you will not be ready for tomorrow. Jesus comes with the trumpet sound and the last hour descends on the earth. And the kings who have it all at that point are wailing. <sighs> so the big question at every point is whether the Son will use His prerogative and position for his own gain over and against his Father, or whether he'll use it in humility, under and with, in submission to, under and with his Father. Is the Son of God going to use His power to exalt Himself over the Father and rebel, or will He come under the Father and obey That is the crisis in these moments. One commentator puts it this way, the test of Jesus as the Son of God is a test of whether He will be the servant of God. Will the Son be the servant? We've seen the previous sons, Adam, Israel, may use their prerogative for themselves. Will this Son be the servant? Answer Verse 4, yes. As we keep reading in our text, now we come to the messianic resistance. We realize that the Son is not going to buy what the devil is selling. Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting there from Deuteronomy 8. The Son of God just throws scripture back into the devil's face. Say, so you're trying to get me to question God's voice, God's word. Well, here's God's word back at you. Let me take you to the context there in Deuteronomy eight before I make any comments. You can just listen if you want. It's Deuteronomy eight, verses two and three. You shall remember the whole way. I should tell you, this is Moses speaking to Israel, okay? As they're about to enter the land. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We're talking about manna here. We're talking about food. and It seems fitting to me that to fight a temptation regarding food in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, Jesus takes a text, quotes a text from Israel's history where they were being tempted by food during their 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus knows what He's doing. I'll show you more fully in a moment. But manna. You might recall uh, manna was God's kind of mysterious way of sustaining Israel as they wandered through the wilderness eventually kind of on their way to the promised land, right? When the people were grumbling in the wilderness in their hunger, which we read last week, God's response is in grace. I don't know if you noticed, if you kept reading from last week as I read them grumbling, you brought us out here to kill us of of hunger. God goes, okay, I see you're grumbling and I, I give you grace. Rain down bread from heaven called manna. Now, he was hoping to teach them something with this manna, with this bread from heaven. There was, there was a purpose in mind as God was doing this with him. And, and the text Jesus quotes from tells us what that purpose is. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord so what's the point of manna it's ironically the point of giving them food from heaven is to say you don't need food ultimately you need the, the 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 place from which the the food comes you need the one who lives in heaven you need god if if you make it all about food you lose god but if you take god you'll get everything you need in the end that's the point of manna that's what G, what god was trying to teach them in the wilderness. But that's the lesson that Israel never learned. I mean, this was tragic for me as I kind of followed this through Exodus and in the Numbers, and you watch this this previous generation die out. Because they were faithless. And you think maybe with the new generation we've got to have something different. Well, nearly 40 years later, and they're kind of on the brink of entering the promised land. What do we read in Numbers 21.5? But the very same junk coming out of the fallen heart of man. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Forty years God rained bread down from heaven in grace upon a grumbling people, and at the end of it, they look and they go, we're so sick of this worthless food. Psalm 78:25 calls manna the bread of the angels. And Israel looks at it and says, "We are the meat pots from Egypt? We're sick of this stuff from heaven. sick of it. So here is Christ at the end of 40 days of fasting, In the wilderness, and he's throwing Deuteronomy 8 3 in the devil's face, as if to say, This is awesome. What Israel never learned that man lives by bread, or that man does not live by bread alone, but by God. What Israel never learned, this son knows. It is written, Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone. God is faithful. No defamation of character here. I am His Son. No identity crisis here. And though I am hungry now, I will have all that I need and more in the end. No tyranny of the urgent for our Savior. Now, I'm going to end with this. The devil is is such a snake that there are subtleties even under his subtleties. In all this talk of bread, for one thing, he's been aiming at, as I've shown you, defamation of character, identity crisis, the tyranny of the urgent. But there is more. There is something more fundamental running underneath all of this He's got an even more ultimate aim. He's aiming in these temptations here at the outset of Jesus' ministry to set the Son on a trajectory that would have Him rejecting His Father's will later when the shadow of the cross falls over Him. Get Him to question a little now. Get Him to sever some of that bond now. If I can sow some seeds of doubt into the Messiah now, those seeds just might flower into full-on denial when the cross comes for Him later. You see, Satan knows why Jesus has come to put an end to the enemy, to do away with sin and death. He knows that it's over for him if he can't stop the cross. And so his aim underneath the subtleties... Even more fundamentally is keep the Messiah from the cross. But here's what's amazing. Jesus sees right through him on this point. And I love it. He matches Satan's subtleties with subtleties of his own. And we'll see this again next week. It's awesome. Jesus matches Satan's subtleties with subtleties of his own even more decisively. For hidden in plain sight in the manna narrative that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament is actually the gospel, you guys. It's the gospel of a God who who would come down in grace for grumbling people. And give Himself away to them, to to feed them, to sustain them in their their progress towards the land of promise. The cross is all over. Over this narrative, the grace that was going to be reliant upon ultimately the sun was foreshadowed there in the manna. And in case you think I've lost my marbles, Jesus himself writes this out for us in capital letters in John six forty-seven to 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It was just a symbol. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This, me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now it all starts to become clear. Why there was no tree in a garden for this son. Why there was no manna coming down from heaven for this son. He's going to be. Jesus Himself is the tree of life. Jesus Himself is the manna from heaven. He is the one who's going to give Himself away to death for the life of the world. this is what you have to love about Jesus. And you'll just see it more and more as as He kind of steals His face towards the cross on the way to Jerusalem as Satan at every point is going to try to turn him away from the cross. However subtly, Jesus here subtly points the devil right back to it. You will not get me off course. I love my Father and I love my people. He will go and He will die for us. Tragedy is that some would still look at the Son on the cross and in His resurrection and His Spirit and all that He accomplished and say, worthless vote. Just a dead man hanging on a tree in history. Who cares? Worthless vote. But not so with us. What we see there for us in the cross of Christ The spirit that is now ours by faith is that God has laid out for us a feast in the wilderness of our temptations. So that now, in participation with the sons, no, we find ourselves able to say the same. Amen.